Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. An unlimited supply of clean, carbon-free energy. Nuclear fusion is a technology that could change the world. That is, if engineers can crack it. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And also coming up on today's show, how geometry shapes the world from language to politics. We ask the mathematician Jordan Ellenberg, The original Greek word means measuring the world, and it's not just triangles. And why one of the most common sports injuries is far more of a risk to women than to men, and how to prevent it. The fact that they're still apparently unaware of these links, or at least aren't doing anything to sort of factor them into their training regimens, is is quite alarming. But first... Nuclear fusion. It powers every star in the universe. But making sustained fusion work here on Earth, however, has proved harder. Nuclear fusion creates energy by combining light atoms to make heavier ones. Unlike coal or natural gas, fusion would produce no carbon dioxide that warms the planet. And unlike existing nuclear power plants that use fission, they should generate much less radioactive waste. Since the 1950s, engineers have been trying to make fusion work on a commercial scale, so far without success. But that less-than-glowing record has not stopped investors from launching new attempts. I think I'm contractually obliged at this point to make the standard joke about how fusion power is 30 years away and always will be. Tim Cross is The Economist technology editor. But I think that that's maybe slightly less true than it was because we've actually seen some sort of progress recently. So on on June the 17th, this Canadian firm uh, called General Fusion, which is a a private company, said it was planning to build a demonstration fusion reactor that would be about 70% the size of a a sort of full-on commercial one in or just outside a little village called Cullum, which is in in England, um, and plays host to the Cullum Centre for Fusion Energy, a sort of national fusion research lab. So we've actually got a reactor, or we will have a reactor if all goes according to plan, that will do actual fusion and will be up and running, the company hopes, by 2025. So why has it been so difficult to bring fusion projects to fruition so far? Basically, there are two ways to get energy out of of atomic nuclei. And the one that we've been using up till now is fission, which is when you start with a big nucleus and you split it into smaller ones, and that releases heat and you can get energy from that. Um, and fission is quite easy to start because a lot of these big nuclei, you know, it doesn't take much of a nudge to get them to split into, into sort of smaller ones. Fusion is the opposite. You start with small atoms and you try and build them up into bigger ones, which also releases 
lots of heat. But the problem there is it's that's much, much harder to do. Most of the fusion reactors that are under development or that we've studied work with various isotopes of hydrogen, which is, you know, it's a single proton and some number of, of neutrons. Uh, protons have a positive electrical charge. And, you know, as we all remember from, from secondary school physics, like charges repel. So you have to overcome that repulsion and that requires like huge amounts of energy, which is why when you read about fusion, they're always talking about temperatures of, you know, hundreds of millions of degrees or massive amounts of, of, of pressure. And that's just really hard to do from a, a, an engineering point of view. What are the different technologies involved to make it happen? Well, I guess there are two, um, broadly speaking, there are sort of two ways that people have tried to do this. So um, a lot of listeners will probably have heard of ITER, which is this you know, massive multinational program that's trying to build a fusion reactor in, in southern France. They've been building it for a decade. It's it, Exactly how far over its budget it is is a, is a, a subject of an argument between ITER and the American authorities, but quite a long way. Um, so they're using something called magnetic confinement fusion, which is the idea is you, you create a plasma, which is a, a bit like a sort of ionized gas. You know, you strip all the electrons off atoms, so you're just left with, with, with the bare nuclei. You have this sort of donut-shaped reactor. You inject a tiny amount of plasma in it. You heat it up in various ways uh, with, with microwaves and so on to these hundreds of millions of degrees. And then you try and use magnetic fields to kind of hold the whole thing together long enough for fusion to happen um, and for it to happen you know, enough that you can get useful amounts of, of energy out of it. And that's just sort of really tricky. Plasma physics is really hard. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to confine something that's incredibly hot. Um, if it ever touches the reactor wall, it, it you know, immediately loses all its heat and, and, and the reaction stops. You need fancy superconducting magnets. You need, you know, all kinds of brain bending calculations and so on. That's one approach. The other approach is called inertial confinement fusion. For instance, there's a big uh, experiment that's been running for years in the US called the National Ignition Facility. And the idea here is you take a little pellet of hydrogen fuel and then you just blast it from all sides at once with incredibly powerful lasers, which you know heat it and also squish it right down and apply huge amounts of, of, of pressure. And the idea is because you've got more pressure, everything's closer together. So you, know, you can get lots more fusion in, in, in a given amount of time. And the hope is one day you'll be able to get a useful amount of fusion before you know, this pellet that you've kind of annihilated with lasers sort of blows itself back apart and, and, and the reaction stops. So what is General Fusion doing? What technology are they choosing? And are they doing anything unique in the way they implement it? Well, they call their approach magnetized target fusion. And again, it's, it's something that dates back decades, but they're trying to make it happen. And the basic idea is to combine the best of magnetized fusion and inertial fusion in a way that means you need less heroic engineering than you would with either one. Instead of trying to use magnets to hold your plasma together for sort of minutes at a time, you create these sort of like self-sustaining little blobs of plasma that are sort of self-confining. And the, the, the best way to think about it, I guess, is it, it's a bit like a smoke ring. So if you blow a smoke ring, you know, it, it hangs around in the air for at least a few seconds. And the reason it does that is there are, there are sort of air currents within the ring that kind of hold it together, at least for a, a little while. Um, so the idea here is that you, you create your plasma and you induce electrical currents in it that likewise hold the plasma together sort of briefly, so maybe 20 milliseconds or sort of something like that. That's obviously not enough time for, for much fusion to happen if you were to stick it into a, a, a tokamak like ITER. Hold on, what's a tokamak? So this is, the, this is the sort of standard thing that people think of when they think of a, a fusion reactor. So it's, um, if you imagine a bagel or a donut with a hole in it, 
that's what the reactor looks like. And sort of inside the ring of the bagel, as it were, is where all the magnetic fields are and where the fusion happens. Anyone who's seen the first Iron Man film, the big arc reactor that Tony Stark built, basically looks like a tokamak. Okay, got it. So that's the bit they take away from the magnetic confinement fusion. But you said they're trying to combine the best of both approaches. How do they do that? So they also take a bit from the the inertial confinement guys um, and try and compress the plasma so that, you know, you can get enough fusion out of out of it, even in that small amount of time. But because your plasma will hang around for, for 20 milliseconds, you don't need to use these sort of banks of super-powered lasers, which, you know, in standard inertial confinement fusion, everything happens within, like, nanoseconds, billionths of a second. So in this approach, you've got, you know, thousands or, or millions of times longer to, to do the business. And what that means is you can do the compression with much less sort of fancy tech. So we've got the promise of energy. Can it be commercialized? Well, this is the big question. So on paper, fusion is very attractive because, uh, you know, it's clean. It emits no carbon, much less radiation and radioactive waste than fission. It works all the time, you know, unlike unlike solar panels or, 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 or the wind. Um, there's no worries about nuclear proliferation like there are with, with fission reactors and so on. But yeah, the big question has always been has always been cost. So if you talk to General Fusion, they'll say their goal is to try and reach rough cost parity with coal because coal is the you know it's the filthiest fuel. It's the thing that you you sort of really need uh, to displace. So they're aiming at a cost of about fifty dollars per per megawatt hour. And does General Fusion have any competitors? Yeah, so there's actually a bit of a, a sort of growing industry in what you might call, I guess, alternative fusion, for, for want of a better word. Um, there are companies like, so there's, there's one called TAE Technologies, who are based in California. Um, there's Commonwealth Fusion Systems, another one called Zap Energy. There's a couple of British players who are also both based near Cullum. Um, one called First Light Fusion, another called Tokamak Energy. And then even when it comes to, to governments, they're not putting all their hopes uh, on, on ITER. So the British government has its own development plan to build a different kind of, of fusion reactor near York by 2040. The Germans are investing in a, um, another sort of old idea that no one's really been able to commercialise called a Stellarator. Uh, they've got a machine called the Wendelstein 7X, which was built in 2015. You know, Now, with climate change so high up the agenda um, and a bit of, of private money coming in, we're seeing a sort of flowering of, of, of alternative approaches. So Tim, what do you think? Is it still 30 years away or are you going to readjust your priors? I really don't know. And you know, if I did know, um, I'd be putting all my money in whichever firm I thought would win rather than talking about it on Babbage. It does feel like something's changed. One of the advantages that these private companies have, they're kind of forced to run on a shoestring budget. They're sort of lean and hungry. They're not like like ITER, which is a big multinational collaboration. It does a lot of good, but but those things are not kind of famous for being, you know, agile and fast. Could you see some demonstration reactors in the next maybe maybe 10 years? Yes. But I think the real question will be, can you do it cheaply enough to compete with, you know, solar power, wind power, um, fission, maybe even, you know, existing fossil fuel plants with carbon capture and storage? Okay, Tim. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show in 30 years. Thanks, Ken. You can drag me out of retirement. Thanks a lot. If you want to learn more about fusion, read about the discovery of a possible new form of Homo sapiens, or imagine what it would be like if marmosets, a type of monkey, lived on the moon, subscribe to The Economist. Yes, all those things do sound like it's a parody of The Economist, but really, it's in the science section of The Economist. And for your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. Again, 
economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell them, Ken sent you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Next up, Jordan Ellenberg is not your average professor of mathematics. When he's not busy teaching at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, he's filled the time having written a novel, and he advised and cameoed in the 2017 film Gifted. Among his specialties in mathematics is arithmetic geometry, basically the science of shapes. And if you're not quite sure how that relates to the world, he's written a book. It's called Shape. The Hidden Geometry of Absolutely Everything. And for our American listeners, you'll find it under another subtitle. Let's see if I remember all the words in it. The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. If you forgive me, the American subtitle does have a lot of angles. Uh, okay, okay, okay. There are a lot of aspects to the issue, but I'm going off on a tangent. Don't worry if it's been a long time since you've solved an equation. The book is about the everyday ways that geometry shapes society. Not very much of it is pure math. There are problems in which the mathematics and the geometry is wound around questions of human action and questions of human agency. And you might like to separate those two things, but you can't, not if you want to think about the thing whole. Now, the word geometry makes most people think of triangles and cubes. And at a stretch, they might think about architecture or navigation. But in your definition, what is geometry? You know, the original Greek word means measuring the world. And nowadays, geometry means any context in which you have a notion of things being near each other or things being far away or things traversing a path or exploring a space. Like any of those when the ones you're using that language, you're using geometric metaphors to explain the world. When we talk about a close relative versus a distant relative or two words being similar in meaning, we are implicitly saying that your family has a certain kind of geometry, uh, the geometry of a family tree. That's actually the geometry that's relevant there. Or that the English language itself has a kind of geometry where words can be closer to each other or farther apart. That kind of geometry is crucial for all these kind of AI applications that work with natural language. That stuff's really there. And it's not just triangles. So if there's a structure behind reality and it can be knowable and it can, we can interact with it using mathematical tools, let's look at some of the ways in which there's a, a geometry substrata to all the ways we interact and how we can actually improve what we do by understanding geometry better. Let's take the most obvious one, one that you explore in the book, election districting and what's known as gerrymandering in America. Tell me what the problem is and how can math come to our rescue? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. That it's a it's a very hot political issue in the United States right now. So what we have come to understand 
very keenly over the last few decades is that how you divide a state up into districts has a huge effect on who ends up getting seated in the legislature, a surprisingly large effect. There's a huge swing that comes from the ability to draw those maps and draw those district boundaries. And in many U.S. states, who does it, who has the job of doing that? It's precisely the legislators themselves. So you can see there's like a very, there's a possibility for a very unpleasant feedback loop there. And that's kind of what we're caught in in the U.S. So what's the solution? How can understanding shape and geometry solve this problem? Yeah. So what can we do about it? And, you know, what's funny is that this has been thought of as a geometric problem for hundreds of years because the original idea, the, the very name gerrymander comes from district drawn by Elbridge Jerry, which was sort of so convoluted and weird looking that it was said to look like a salamander, thus the gerrymander. Unfortunately, what we now know is that with modern computation, you don't have to make the districts look really weird and jagged and tenderly in order to lock in like a big advantage for yourself. You can make districts that look kind of really nice and rectangular and also confer a huge advantage to your party. You can do gerrymandering that's not visible to the naked eye. So the geometry that's relevant now is geometry of a much higher nature. Um, it's the geometry of, ready for this, the space of all possible ways to cut the state up into districts. And as you can imagine, that is like an absolutely huge and mammoth space. And the question of how to explore it is a rather deep mathematical one. So in, so in the end, here's what we do, ready? We can generate maps by machine, not just one map, not just 10, like thousands and thousands and thousands of maps by exploring essentially a random, this space of all possible ways that we could cut a state like Wisconsin, where I live, uh, into districts. And what you find when you do that is that the random maps, the randomly generated ones, look nothing like the map we actually have. You can look at those maps and see how good they would be for each party. And they vary, of course. There's no sort of right answer to how many seats each party should have. But there's a range. There's a nice kind of, you know, what you might call a bell curve. And the maps we actually have, the ones that were drawn by one party, are way, way, way far off the end of that bell curve. They're so-called outliers. There is no such thing as absolute fairness. But that doesn't mean that we can't identify the most egregiously unfair choices that people make and rule that out. Is there one problem that we're facing that you felt that, gee, if only the public and policymakers had a greater appreciation for shape, geometry, and math, that we'd be closer to solving this problem? What's begging for your outlook to be applied? Let me be a little bit retrospective about this, but also future looking in that I think what we saw maybe about a year and a half ago at the very beginning of the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic throughout the world was that I think there were basic facts about the way spread through a network works that were not clearly grasped. I think certainly in the United States and I think in England too, there really wasn't a grasp of like what the worst case scenario actually looked like. And I think that hampered a lot of things. And I say that you really ask about the future, not about the past, but this is not the last time this is going to happen. I think that's one thing we know. Now, you may say that, you know, now we've all had this like rather rigorous geometry lesson, right, over the last year about how this kind of thing works. And actually, as a mathematician, I've actually been 
quite impressed with the generally high level of the way the media and the public have grasped a lot of what I see as like geometric issues about how to think about pandemic spread. I mean, I think the level of discussion has, after a slow start, been pretty high. I mean, I, I would agree with that. I think it's interesting that maybe we had the models and the models were good. Maybe it was just how public leaders... Some of them were good. Yeah. So I think it's just, it's interesting that a lot of leaders simply were blind to the model. Well, here's where I come down in the book. And I was writing this book, of course, I had to turn in the final text like last October. So, you know, it's written from really inside the height of the pandemic. Here's, here's my metaphor for how you think about the models. If you throw a tennis ball up into the air, a physics model is really good at telling you how long it's going to stay in the air and when it's going to land and how high it's going to go, right? If you toss a tennis ball in the air and hit it, actually physics can still give you a pretty good model for the track of that ball if you know things like with what level of force do you hit it, what kind of spin do you put on the ball, etc. That's a harder problem than just throwing it up and not hitting it, but you can do it. If you ask a physicist who's going to win this tennis match, that they cannot do, right? That's a, that's a different story. But it doesn't mean that the physics is useless. It doesn't mean that the physical model is not doing something. But a tennis match is physics plus human reactions to physics. And I think a pandemic is very much the same way. It's a dynamic model of disease spread plus human reactions individually and in the aggregate to the results of those dynamics. And that's not something you can predict by a curve, right? And yet it's something that if you're not willing to do the math and think about the curve, you're also going to fail. You have to do both. You have to think mathematically and geometrically, and you have to think humanistically and about the way people actually behave. And if you sort of cut off either of the legs of that table, your table's going to fall down. Jordan Ellenberg, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. This is great. Now, regular Babbage listeners know that we occasionally do a book giveaway on the show. The idea is that we ask a question that requires answers from both hemispheres of the brain, the analytical and the creative. The winner is determined by my subjective and totally unscientific sentiments. This week, we're giving away a signed copy of Jordan's book, Shape. He and I came up with a question, and he's agreed to help choose the winner. So, pencils at the ready. Okay, so here's a question. What thing in our world, in our society has the wrong shape. That is, it should have some shape other than the shape it has. It's obviously malformed. We obviously made a wrong choice. Uh, how would you fix this geometry and make it better? To enter, send your answer, the item, and a sentence or two justifying it to radio at economist.com by Sunday, July 4th. And then keep an eye on your email. We'll select a winner and runners up. Again, Enter at radio at economist.com. And good luck. Finally, peak athletic performance is a thing of sheer beauty. Feet pounding on the track, the ball soaring neatly into that top left corner. A miraculous final minute touchdown. All those bones and muscles working together in perfect harmony. And of course, your breathing, it's really all down to your breathing. But it only takes one false step for the damage to be done. One of the most common sporting injuries is the dreaded ACL, damage to a ligament in the knee. It can take up to a year to recover from. 
retail rates are as high as 20%, and it's a known risk factor for arthritis. This crippling injury is becoming more common. The anterior cruciate ligament, which is what we call the ACL, is one of four ligaments that hold the knee together. When you move your leg, it's what keeps your knee from popping out. Elizabeth Pete works at The Economist. Tearing it, which is what about two million people do globally every year, is one of the most immobilizing injuries you can sustain. It stops you basically being able to move your leg properly. They're usually a consequence of an awkward movement in a fast-paced game like football or a heavy contact sport when there's a lot of pressure being put on the knee suddenly. And the surgery and rehabilitation um, needed to repair it costs billions of dollars a year, so it's a massive problem. And it's in recent years, it's become increasingly clear just how devastating and possibly preventable the injury actually is. Why are we seeing such an increase in ACL cases? A study in 2018 at Boston Children's Hospital found that over the course of the, of the decade, the number of them relative to other orthopaedic problems had tripled among Americans under the age of 18. I mean, there are a lot of theories as to why this might have been, but one quite convincing one, I think, is that it may be a consequence of movements towards single sports specialisation in American schools. OK, so specialisation is one theory. What are some of the others? There have been a lot of studies on this and nothing hugely conclusive, but there was a very convincing study recently that showed incidents of ACL tears for American footballers in particular went up a lot on artificial turf. Um, so it may be linked to a particular sport or particular sort of training level. But one of the most curious features of all, though, is that studies have shown that women tear their ACLs up to eight times more frequently than men. OK, so that's why it might be happening, but it seems like it's affecting women more than men. The clue in this might be a connection with the menstrual cycle. So a study in 2013 looked at a group of female skiers in the Alps and found that those in the pre-ovulatory stage of their cycles were more than twice as likely to suffer an ACL tear than others. A four-year survey of England footballers, which was published this year, also found a clear correlation and within the same phase of the cycle. So muscle and tendon injuries were far more common in the late follicular phase of the cycle. Lizzie, that's incredibly interesting, but I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. What does follicular mean? So the menstrual cycle is broken up into different phases, which you may remember from your biology lessons at school. And follicular phase of the cycle is just before ovulation, which again would support the, the study of the skiers in the Alps. What could be the reason for this link? The exact reason remains unclear. I mean, this whole area needs, needs a lot more research. Um, but there are estrogen receptors on the actual ligament, as there are on a lot of muscles and tendons. But other reasons why women have higher ACL tear rates may be female body shapes and movement patterns. So compared with men, women tend to have wider hips, more inverted knees, and over-dominant quad muscles, which are the, the muscles um, on the thigh bone. And all of these things may put extra pressure on the elaborate workings of the knee compared to men. Women also tend to land in a more flat-footed manner than men do and to pivot a bit more awkwardly. Um, but again, this is all very hypothetical and much more research needs to be done. But these are all theories that are being bounced around at the moment. So what can sportswomen do to monitor their bodies and their activities? So dealing with the menstrual cycle has in the past been, been trickier since it entails individual athletes keeping detailed track of their cycles. But modern equipment, modern technology can make this a lot easier. So, for example, the American women's football team, which is our English football, not American football, sorry, Ken. Soccer. They are obviously the best women's football team in the world, soon to be overtaken by England, I'm sure. But basically, they use Fitter Woman, which is an app that monitors a user's cycle and tells her on which days it may be more risky to train intensely, as well as sort of diet and other other general health things that might make her less susceptible to these kind of injuries. And this is something that the team's high performance coach, Dawn Scott, 
reckons did contribute to their retention of the World Cup in 2019. Um, back in England, football's home country, of course, um, Fitter Women is also making a mark. And the women's side at Chelsea Football Club, who won this year's Super League, have also adopted the app. So this is something that is gaining a lot of traction with professional women's teams. So when they're not throwing around the pigskin, they are monitoring their estrogen. Correct. Yes. And and it seems to be having results. I mean, both Chelsea and the US women's football team are champions. And so there is evidence that perhaps it is having an impact on the team's overall fitness. So much for a technology solution. What else can we do to mitigate the risk? Um, Well, of course, anatomy is what it is. You can't really do a lot about the fact that women tend to have wider hips and have other factors which put extra pressure on their knee. But all athletes can be trained in how to move much more safely, particularly women. So straightforward exercise classes in balance and agility have been found to reduce ACL tears by as much as 50%. And strengthening the muscles around the knee, especially the hamstring with focused exercises, is another way to really effectively reduce the chances of a tear in basically making the knee much more protected by the muscles around it. Is there a role for the sports bodies or the other sports authorities to do something? Absolutely. I mean, these are the kind of solutions that should be encouraged much more widely and currently aren't. So, I mean, these classes, for example, should be introduced into all schools and and college sports. At the moment, they're mainly used in sort of professional and and higher level sports. That does, though, require a wider awareness of the problem, which is still lacking. So particularly, for example, on the, on the, the link with the menstrual cycle. In 2019, a survey of runners in England of over 14,000 female athletes found that 81% of them had never discussed the impact of their menstrual cycle on training. And these were all sort of high level athletes. And the fact that they're, they're still apparently unaware of these links, or at least aren't doing anything to sort of factor them into their training regimens is, is quite alarming. So we definitely need to be spreading more awareness of this. So interesting. Lizzie Pete, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ken. And thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It matters a lot. The producers are the marvelous Jason Hoskin, Abby Soye Oshindairo, Juliette Jabkudo, and Amika Shortino Nolan. The editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Selling a little? or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.